You know, shortly before I became the pastor of this church, I was here, um, but I had an interview at another church that provided me with one of my greatest stories, I guess. Uh, it was a moment that, I, that I've talked about a lot. Some of you have heard this story, so forgive me. Uh, but before I, I, I tell you that story, I want to say this. It's not my intent to tell you this to bash on another church or, or anything like that. I won't tell you what church. Uh, I, I'm sure that they do great things. This is just my experience in, in one interview. And so I, I went to this interview, and before I arrived at the interview, I already had the inclination that I wasn't going to be a good fit uh, in, in this congregation. And that was because in the initial phone call where they called and said, hey, uh, we got your name from somebody, uh, we're, we're interested in you as our pastor, uh, you know, what do you think? I said, well, I really love the area you're in. And he said, yeah, it's full of a bunch of hippies. He didn't mean that as a compliment like some people in our congregation might. He meant that with all of the negativity, he almost spit it. Out. And, and in fact, I said, well, I, I kind of like the hippies. I was trying to not get myself hired right from the beginning. I, I, don't, I like those hippies. And, and he said, well, that's fine. You can bring them to church as long as they give us money. Ooh. <laughs> so I show up just two days later. Uh, it was a quick turnaround. Uh, usually churches take like a year and a half to hire anybody. But this church was ready. They were moving. And so two days later, I go to the interview and I show up and I immediately can tell that it's not going to be a good fit. Right when I get there, uh, just in who showed up, first of all, and, 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 and kind of in their attitude a little bit, how they were dressed compared uh, to kind of the culture around them in the area. Uh, but then the interview started, and this is where it got really good. Every single question that they asked me, almost, there was a, a couple about money and what I thought of that, about that. But, but almost every other question, as I was sitting there listening to them, was basically this. Are you going to do church like we did it in the 1950s? It's basically what they were saying to me. Now, I have no problem with church in the 1950s, but I wasn't alive, so I'm not the guy if that's what you want to do, right? I don't remember it. I don't know what that looked like, but I've heard stories. They asked me about Sunday school. They asked me about type of music. They asked me about Bible studies and, and would I go to these kind of Bible studies and altar calls and things like that. And, and, and I could tell where their focus was at. It was on doing it the way that it used to be done. And so then, questions are over, and they really like me. I can tell they really like me. And uh, the guy even says, well, we've always hired somebody with experience before, but I'm not sure that that's the way we need to go this time. So like, they're ready. They're giving me the job. And they have a house that sits right on their property in an area that I would love to live in. It's been fully remodeled. And so the guy says, well, would you like to come over and see the house now? And a single thought went through my head. If I go look at that house, I will take this job and I will regret it for the rest of my life. So I had a decision to make. I stopped. I said, no, actually, because this is never going to work. And then I spent two, three minutes, this is not a joke, lecturing them on how, and I quote, they were never going to reach people in their community. I paused. They thought for a second. They looked at me. They said, well, we weren't asking because we want you to do it that way. We were just curious. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so I said, sure, fine, whatever. But that's what it sounds like. And this is never going to work. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in an interview where you turned around and lectured the person that was talking to you. Uh, but if you've never lived through that experience, 
after you've lectured them, you're still sitting there and they're still looking at you, probably seven people, and you're at this table with them. There's no good out, right? I mean, what do you say? See you guys later. Good luck with finding a pastor. And so I, I, I broke the silence for them. I figured that I had been hard on them enough and I I said, I'll show myself out. I'm sure you guys have things to talk about now. Me. And so I stood up. I started head for the door and I stopped and I asked a question. And the question illustrates what Jesus it wants to say to us today in a parable that we'll read just in just a second from Luke chapter 11 verses 5 through 13. And uh, Jesus is going to talk about praying with audacity. And shameless audacity is, is the way that it's translated in the NIV. And, and what we see in that story was pictured in the very next thing to come out of my mouth. And, and, and here's what I said. I turned around. It didn't even seem like that bad at the time. But by the time I got to the door, I was ready to tell everybody what I had said because I realized just how awesome maybe it was, um, if you will. Or you're going to think this guy's just a jerk. I turned around. And I said, and by the way, can I have my resume back? It was printed on expensive paper. (laughs) Yeah. And they looked at me, and they picked up the resume, and they handed it to me, and I walked out of the door. And here's the thing. I still have that resume because I'm still here at this church. Now, here's what the parable says in Luke 11, 5 through 8. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, I want to go through this parable again, and I'm just going to read verses and then in, insert just a little bit of uh, context for the culture in which Jesus lived, because they would have understood this passage of Scripture much better than we understand it from a, a, a 21st century America perspective. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. Now, there's a couple of things that are really important for you to understand about the culture at the time. First of all, hospitality was, was one of the greatest virtues that you could have at the time. In fact, to not be hospitable, if we could say it the other way, was just to be a bad person in some ways. Today, we look at certain people. I'm not one of these people. My wife is. And we look at them and we say, well, they're very hospitable. You know, when somebody comes over, they they vacuum. That would be a bigger step than me. And they make sure that they feel comfortable and welcomed and loved. And that person is hospitable. We look at it as a virtue. But but for them, it was something that was a necessity. I mean, to not be hospitable, to not take care of your guests was really to do something that was wrong in the society and you would be in some ways shamed. And so for this guy who's there in the middle of the night, when somebody shows up, he's going to need to give them bread, to give them a place to sleep, to make sure that they feel comfortable and welcomed and loved or else people in the community 
and people talk back then like they do today, are going to say, did you hear what Bob did? He was just not very good to the person who stopped in his house last night. He didn't take care of him at all. I can't believe it. Let's not talk to him at church on Sunday. And that is the attitude that they had towards hospitality. It was paramount to the culture in which they lived, especially because a traveler coming from one city to another isn't going to be able to go to a grocery store or to a hotel room. Those things didn't exist in the, in the way that they exist today. And so it was very, very important that friends took care of friends when they showed up in a town. Now, here's the other thing that's just really important about this. It wasn't like today where you have a ton of leftovers. Instead, you every single day would work to make enough money to buy bread for the next day. The next day, you'd get up, you would make bread, you would eat that bread, and then you would go to bed knowing that tomorrow you needed to go buy bread with the money that you had made during that day. Today, we think of leftovers. I mean, we have tons of stuff sitting in our refrigerator right now. If we don't have stuff, then I literally walk to the grocery store and I go pick up whatever we need, not even thinking twice about how we might not have something. We can start any meal we want because I live 30 seconds from Thriftway walking distance. And so I, I just go down there and I get whatever we need and I don't even think about it at all. But in first century Israel, it wasn't that way at all. You ate your food and then if somebody shows up on you at midnight, your food is gone. Now in Jesus' parable here, this friend who needs to be hospitable, it's part of what he's supposed to do, part of what God has commanded in many ways, and he needs to do that, but he doesn't have any food of his own. And so the only thing he knows to do is to go to somebody else's house who had a good crop or who had a good work day or whatever it might be that allowed him to have extra food. And so that's what he does. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed and can't get up and give you anything. Now, when we first read this, we go, oh, that guy's rude. I mean, who says that, right? I mean, can you picture the conversation here? I mean, the guy's knocking on the door and, and, and you can hear through the walls because it's not like our house is today unless you live at my house. Then you can hear everything through the walls uh, because we live in a townhouse. And, and so he's just laying there and he's in his bed and he's like, hey, I can't get up right now. And you think, well, who does that? I mean, at least fake like you're sleeping. That's what I would do. Ask my wife. I fake sleep all the time. Check, can you get the garbage? Just like that. Uh, it doesn't work because I'm horrible at it, and I haven't videotaped myself yet sleeping so that I know exactly what I look like, but it's in the works. Don't worry. Uh, and so this looks at first like a guy that's just flat out rude. But here's what you need to understand about the culture. They didn't have separate bedrooms. When this happens right here, this guy who's in his house is sleeping next to his wife and all of his children and probably all of his animals as well. That changes things, right? So he's laying there. He's in the middle. He's got kids all around him. And there's animals. There's camels. And he is there thinking, if I get up, everybody wakes up if they're not already awake. And it's a very difficult thing to do. I have to step over people. We probably lose our warmth that we've kind of created by being next to each other. The animals are going to get upset. And I have to unlock the door, which wasn't like a lock that we have today, where you go like this, right? That's what I do when I lock my door. Think more like locking up a chain and unlocking the chain. For those of you who are part of our church, when you go to the church property and you have to do the chain, you've got to run it through the hoop, uh, and you have to get the padlock off, and then you've got to pull it to the other side. Not a huge deal, but much more difficult, louder, more obnoxious for people trying to sleep than turning a little knob. So this guy isn't being that rude. He's been sleeping for hours already, and he's simply saying, hey, 
I'm out. I'm going to disturb everybody. And so just let me lay here and sleep. Verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This can also be translated, this word, this phrase, shameless audacity, uh, as boldness or unashamedly or shamelessness. And here's what you need to know to understand this parable. Just before it, in verse 1 of Luke chapter 11, what's taken place is some of the disciples had heard Jesus praying. They said, wow, he sounds like he knows what he's doing, and he's Jesus, and we follow him around. And so one of them, it doesn't tell us who, says, hey, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And Jesus begins teaching them how to pray in the first three verses of this chapter of Scripture by giving them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And we think, well, that's cool. That makes sense. But the continuation of teaching here is far more interesting, right? Because what seems to happen is Jesus seems to compare God, the answer of prayers, the one who has the bread that the other guy needs, God, he compares him to a neighbor that's a little bit grumpy and doesn't want to answer the prayers. Now, If we go that far, then we miss the point of the parable. Because the point is not that God is a grumpy guy that sleeps with camels. That is not the point of this parable. Instead, the point of the parable is on the asker. And Jesus emphasizes in this one story, in this story, one phrase. It's really one word in Greek. And it is the only thing really in the entire story that matters for our lives. And it is that phrase, shameless, audacity, boldness, unashamedly. Somebody that is shameless in asking. And you think, well, what does that have to do with my prayer life? Here's what I think the answer is. I think that God wants us to ask for things that we don't even feel like we should be asking for. Not because they're sinful or wrong, but because they're so big and maybe so personal that it doesn't seem like God should be bothered with them. And there's one question, as I read this word shameless audacity, that comes to mind, and it's this question right here. What is God not doing because you are not asking? What is God not doing because you are not asking? You see, at first when you read this parable and you see the word shameless audacity, what you seem to kind of gravitate towards is, well, God will answer my prayers... If I pray bigger, bolder, crazier things. But that doesn't seem to fit the rest of Scripture, nor does it seem to fit with this passage of Scripture, where the guy isn't praying big, bold, huge things. He's saying, hey, I need a few pieces of bread. It isn't the shameless audacity of what he is asking for. It is the shameless audacity of asking the question. Now, you may say, well, I, I, I mean, I don't think there's anything that, that God, you know, wouldn't answer me about. But sometimes we act and practice like some things are too big or some things are things that God would not care about. And, and here's what we do. If, if I could just examine and kind of uh, analyze your prayer life and mine for one second, I think what happens is we generally pray for things that we think we can get done or somebody else can get done. Like when we pray for healing for somebody here uh, in our church, which is a Baptist church, what we pray for, it sounds like this most of the time, God, 
please use the doctors to heal that person. Right? You've probably said that before. God, and we even word it like this. Hey, God, maybe heal them, but really make sure that that surgeon's hands are doing the right things and, and that he's thinking clearly and then he got it a good night's sleep and he's not hung over. I mean, that's the type of thing that we pray for. But really, aren't we just kind of hoping in those moments? We're not really looking at God and saying, God, I want you to heal this person. We're praying things that we think are realistic, that we're going to get a yes answer to even if we don't pray. And what I think this passage of Scripture is saying to you and I is that we need to start praying things that we don't think could ever, ever happen apart from asking God. And we need to be willing to ask everything that we think is important. Now, on the other side of that, I think some of you, you you really think God doesn't want to be bothered with these things. You think, I I just... I mean, does he really care? Does God really care if I get a new job? Does God really care if I'm more satisfied in my marriage? Does God really care that my kid grows up to to be a godly person and to live a successful life, however you define that word? Does does God really care? I mean, he has big things going on. I mean, there there are things around our country that are going awry and crazy all the time. And God's got to worry about those. And you look at other countries and there's starving children and there's, there's bombs going off far more than they go off in our country. And those are the things God really cares about. But then somewhere inside of us, even though you would never vocalize this, right, you go, ah, he doesn't really care. I mean, I'm not going to pray today because he doesn't really care. And so I think that what happens is we are prevented from praying, right? Because we talked about this at the beginning where you are a person who thinks, oh, I should pray more. And that's kind of our attitude towards prayer. That's the one thing that anybody in church these days ever says about prayer, right? I should probably do it more. But when you look at Jesus' words here in Luke 11, it moves it from being something that I should do it more is something that I need to do more because God is saying if we will come to Him and we will ask Him, we will have the shameless audacity to say, Jesus, this is what I need. This is what needs to happen. This is what I want to see in the world and in my life. Then God will respond to those things. Listen to some of the prayers. I'll just give you two of them in the Bible. Genesis 18, 16 through 32. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham, famous guy in the Old Testament, walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away, two guys hanging out with Abraham. The men turned away towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? That's pretty shameless, right? I mean, you're calling God out, saying, that's not you. I mean, I've said that to people like, hey, that's not how you act. But to say to God, that's pretty bold. That's pretty audacious. The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Now that I have been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous people is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are there, he said. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, speaking of Abraham, may the Lord not be angry with me, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? The Lord answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 people can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, God is going to destroy this whole city, and he does anyway because there's not 10 righteous people there. Sad ending. But this is the truth. Abraham talks God down, if you will. I know you won't like that. But talks God down to 10 people. If there's just 10 righteous, then save that city. And God says, okay, I will. And it definitely seems to be in response to the audaciousness of Abraham being willing to ask something of God. Looking at God and saying, wow. Seems like he made up his mind, but if just five less, then will you still save that city? How about Joshua 10, 12 and 13? On that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Now they're about to go to war, battle with this this other group. And here's what Joshua says to God. Sun stand still over Gibeon and you moon over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies. That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. Joshua looks up at the heavens. He needs to win a battle. He thinks that having light while the other group doesn't have light is going to cause them to be victorious and really to glorify God because the nation of Israel was their people. And so he looks up and he asks for the sun and the moon to stop moving. Who of you would have thought to ask that? Who would have been audacious enough to say that? But God responds to the prayer. Mark 5, 24 through 30. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Cyrene, Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Now here, this is audacious. I mean, this is a woman, 
a Greek woman who's not supposed to be around this Jewish man at all. And she comes to him in his house, it seems, wherever he is staying, which is even more audacious. I mean, he's trying to get away from people at this moment in his life. And she comes into the house. Who comes into somebody's house? If you come into my house, I'm going to be mad at you. But she comes into Jesus' place of staying. And she, a woman, a Greek woman, somebody that can't even be in the guy's presence, says, hey, can you drive the demon out of my daughter? Jesus says, first let the children eat all that they want. He told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Even when Jesus seems to give her a negative response, she says, no, no, no. You can do this. And I want you to do this. And I need you to do this. And you know what? Her daughter was healed because she was audacious enough to ask God for something that seemed absolutely impossible. And so what I want you to hear, what I think is, is really at the heart of this, is that we need to be people who don't look at God and say, God, you're too big to answer this prayer, but we pray. And we also don't look at God and say, God, you're too small to really do this, and so we don't pray. Now, again, I'm going to say it every week. God does not say yes to every single prayer. But what Jesus seems to be saying is that if we want more yes responses than no responses, then we need to approach God with, with just an audaciousness that says, I believe you can do it, and I believe you will do it, and I'm asking, even though it might not sound right, even though I don't know what you'll say, even though I don't know what you'll think about this, or if you'll be mad at me, I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to knock on your door, and I'm going to say, Jesus, get up out of bed, because something needs to happen now. Here's what one author said about this passage of Scripture. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who, is te- who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then... Approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The book of Hebrews emphasizes what Jesus has already said, but it takes it to another level. It says, look, you can even be bolder now because somebody sits at the right hand of the Father. His name is Jesus. And if you're a Christian, then you're a follower of his, you're a friend of his, and he is your Savior and the one who loves you and, and the person that you should know loves you more than anybody else. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. He is not a grumpy neighbor. He, he is not a jerk. He is not rude. He is the lover of your soul. And he is the one talking to God on your behalf. And so now even more, the prayers that you offer can be bold so that you can find help and encouragement in the time of need. Here's what one author says. The great prayers of the Bible are recorded in Scripture to set an all-time prayer standard for us, to force us out of our defensive prayer posture, to inspire us to rise up and begin to pray like juggernauts, juggernauts like Moses who stood in God's way and prayed that God wouldn't kill the Israelites after they worshipped the golden calf. Juggernauts like the apostles who asked for and expected miracles and who spoke out boldly in the face of persecution so that the name of Jesus could be lifted high. Juggernauts like Elijah whose prayer both caused and ended a three and a half year drought. 
You push back on this, but I suggest that the prayers of these people are not abnormal. They are not the exception. At least they were never meant to be. The tragedy of our times is that we have taken what was meant to be ordinary and made it exceptional. We put audacity on the highest shelf out of reach and declared it off limits. James 5.17 makes this eye-opening statement. Elijah was just a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. It's too bad that most of us focus on the second part of this verse. We're stunned by the superior power of Elijah's prayer life. We'd love to have an ounce of this power throwing in our prayer lives, but we don't have to wish. That's the whole point of the passage. We're just like Elijah. Think about it. Elijah had access to an all-powerful God who could stop the rain. We have access to an all-powerful God who can stop the rain. The only difference is that Elijah had the audacity to pray prayers that lived up to God's character, God's heart, God's resources, God's will, and God's ability. The big book of prayer says this. Have you ever listened to how we pray? It's like Christians have developed their own prayer language. And I don't mean the ecstatic kind. Lord, please bless Bill. What exactly do we mean by that? Do we want God to make Bill more holy or more disciplined? Are we hoping that his business will prosper or that he'll be a better husband? And why do we ask for blessing when Ephesians 1.3 says that we are already blessed with every spiritual blessing that God can give? God, please be with Joan. God's already with Joan. His spirit lives in her and he promised to never leave her or forsake her. What do we really want God to do for Joan? Father, we pray that you will give Jack, a special anointing, as if there is such a thing as an ordinary anointing. Special anointing is redundant. And God, we ask that you give Sue an extra helping of your grace. What is that? Does God dole out grace and measure proportions? That prayer makes God seem as if he has a big serving spoon, that it can be either generous or stingy with the helpings of grace he dispenses. God wants us to be strategic and focused about what we are asking him to do. We need to pray things, very specific things, gritty things, personal things, important things, kingdom things. Let me read that last part to you one more time because that is, I think, really central to what Jesus is telling us in this parable. God wants us to be strategic and focused about what we are asking him to do. We need to pray for things, very specific things, gritty things, personal things, important things, kingdom things. Audacious prayers coming to God and saying, look, it's not a, I don't, you can bless who you want to bless. This is what needs to happen in my mind. You can say no if you want, God, but this is what I am asking you to do. I am asking that you give me a new job where I can be a missionary. I am asking that you provide the resources for me to live the life that you have called me to live. I am asking that you give me what I need to fulfill the ministry that you have called me to do. And so, God, give me this amount of money. Give me this person in my life who will give us this ability to do this thing in this way. God, show me exactly where you want me to live. Make it very clear to me. God, show me the next step in my life and what you would have me do. Lord, bring that person to salvation. God, help that person to remove the sin from their life that I know is hurting their family and them. 
We need to stop saying, God bless everybody. What does it mean? And we need to knock on the door of God with audacious prayers that are real. I think we're scared sometimes that God is not going to to like it if we say, God, this is it. And we think that God is not cool enough or big enough or smart enough to say no when he needs to. And so we say, what if I pray it, then he might just do it. No, come on, you're not God. He is, and he will say yes if you ask, but he will also say no when he needs to. Jesus is saying through this parable that we need to be like people who need something. We get up out of bed and we knock on the door of God and say, this is what I need. Please give it to me. That is what Jesus is telling us. The last part of it emphasizes it, but makes it even better. Verse 9. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Now here's the thing. The Bible says elsewhere, you have not because you ask not. That's biblical. And I think it's so true. I can see it in our congregation. I can see it in your lives. You're like, I wish this thing would happen. I'm working really hard to make it happen. Go knock on the door of Jesus. Say, Jesus, I know you have the power. I know you care. And so, hey, will you give me the loaves of bread that I need? In my life. And he ends it this way. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And again, we talked about this verse a few weeks ago. But he closes by saying, God is not a grumpy neighbor. So how much more... Will God respond to your prayers when you ask? Because he is your heavenly father. I mean, it's easy to go, well, that guy was mad and, you know, he could have stayed in bed. I mean, he could have stayed there and it wouldn't have been a big deal to him because he was grumpy and he just woke up. And I've been around Chad when he's grumpy and he just woke up and he wouldn't do anything for me. And so God's just like that. But God says, or Jesus says, no, 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 no. God is not the grumpy neighbor. In the parable, sure, he's represented by a grumpy neighbor, but God is something greater. He is your heavenly father. And I can tell you this because I'm an American. I'm a pretty individual person. I try not to be because I believe that church is the most powerful thing on the planet. And so it doesn't make any sense for me to try to live this life alone. But as an American, somebody who's individualistic, it's hard for me to go over to my neighbor's house and be like, hey, I need something. You know, have you ever been there where you need sugar or something? And, like, that's a long walk. Like, every step, you're like, you're fighting your pride and like, oh, they're going to think I'm annoying. They're going to be bothered by this. They might not have sugar and then it's embarrassing because they'll feel bad they don't have sugar. I can just go to the grocery store. It's not going to burn that fast. Uh, you know, and all these, and this is the long walk. But Jesus ends by saying, this isn't like talking to your neighbor. This is like talking to your dad, and he is a very good dad. I have no problem asking my dad for anything. He can tell you that. Dad, any money? Dad, I don't want to pay for that meal. Dad, you want to go golfing? He knows what that means. Dad, you want to pay for golfing? There's no problem in asking my dad for things. He says no. If I asked him for a scorpion, he'd probably say no to that, literally. Um, uh, and, and if I asked for something ridiculous and, and bad for me, hey, Dad, I need a gun so I can go rob a bank, he'd say no to that. But if he could help me, and he knew it was good for me, then he would always help me. But he's not going to help me oftentimes until I ask, because he 
he, unlike God, is not going to know the need. But God, for some reason, whatever reason that is, seems to be saying, I'm waiting for you to ask me. I'm waiting for you to knock on my door. I'm waiting for you to say, this is what I need, this is what I want, because I want to give it to you. So just ask me for it. And so what I say to you, audacity in this passage is not just praying for big things. It's being willing to pray about everything. And it's praying in specific ways, I think. This is this is the need, and so God, do this. But it is also praying for big things that maybe you, you just have thought, ah, that's so big, I can't even fathom how that could happen. Just pray for those things too. And here, here's what I believe. I believe that your life will be changed if you start praying audaciously. I believe that our church will be changed because God will say yes to a lot of our prayers. And right now, I think there are things that we're not praying that God is waiting to say yes to. And so I'll ask one more time and then I'll pray for you. Here it is. Think about it as I pray. What has not happened because you have not asked God? What is not currently taking place or being done or has been fulfilled because you have not asked God to make it happen? Will you pray with me? Lord, there are so many things that I think you want us to do as your people, as a church, uh, as the universal church all over the world, God, Christians. And Lord, I think there's things that you personally want the people to do that are sitting in front of me right now. And uh, I, I just ask that they would begin to pray, Lord, that they would, they would ask, Lord, and we would not be people who are timid to come to you, and we would not be people, God, who look at you as this distant being who doesn't care, that we don't really have access to, Lord, but instead we who are Christians would, would God, we would come to your door with every need, even the wants of life, the things that, that we see that need to happen, and we would ask, Lord. Father, I, I pray for anybody who doesn't know you, God, that, that has not come to a relationship with you through the death and resurrection of Jesus, I pray they would give their lives to you because right now they're going through life without a heavenly door to knock on. God, for, for without, a, without a place to go when they need help and encouragement in time of need. And, and so I just pray that you would bring anybody listening, God, that doesn't know you to you, Lord, through through Jesus. And God, I just uh, I just want to take a minute and... And pray some audacious things, Lord, uh, that I think you should say yes to. Lord, I pray that in our country, you, you, would, you would cause marriages to be what you want them to be. And we'd see the divorce rates over the next 10, 20 years go down, Lord. Because people would commit to you in a very real and powerful way. I pray that, that God, you would take away the mass violence that we are starting to see in our country. God, is coming more and more and we're, we're backed into a corner... I think scared, saying, don't let us die, God. But we're, I just want to ask you right now, Lord, just, just to, to start a process in our country where, where those things are starting to go away and we are returning to a, a day when we feel safe in our country. Jesus, I pray for the community of Wilsonville and Sherwood and Tualatin and all of the surrounding cities. I pray for these cities and I pray you'd start revivaling them, Lord. And someday we could look back and see how you started the third great awakening in our country, God. And it started right here in our midst because, because we allowed.
allowed you to work through us. I pray that you would give us $1.5 million so that we could put a community center on our property and, and do, God, what you want us to do there, serving our community and discipling people for your glory and your fame. God, I pray that this morning somebody in this congregation that doesn't know you would give their life to you, Jesus. I pray that we, God, as a church, would be a church that really just starts to pray passionately and powerfully because we're listening to what you say in your word about praying for results, God. And I pray that we are a church, will be a church, that, God, you will use in mightier ways in this next year. And and I pray that we grow out of this building before January, God, and we're working and striving to figure out what you want us to do next, Lord. And I pray that this church would be a symbol of love and unity in our community and people would look at the relationships that we have and go, man, I want to have relationships like that, but I don't know how. And we would point them to you and say, Jesus is the only way that you can experience this type of unity. Lord, that's all going to happen as you move. We can't do any of those things. And so we ask, I'm knocking at your door, God. I'm expecting you to do these things, God, because they are all in my mind within your will, but I will trust you and follow you with my whole heart even if you say no. I ask these things because you came and you died and you rose again and you sit at the right hand of the Father, Jesus, and you're interceding for me, talking to your Father and my Father about how much we need his help in our times of need. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Father. We love you, spirits. Amen.